And it was 8 a.m. in the morning, this woman rang me and she said, you don't know who I am, but your device saved my life and it's Thanksgiving, so I wanted to ring you to say thank you. Mm. And I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, like, who are you? What's this about? Um, and it was traumatic brain injury related headaches that had been so bad it made her suicidal. Um, and it was after that call that I was like, okay, the only thing we need to do now to make sure that this succeeds in one form or another is to get a thousand devices out in the real world. Welcome to Startup Health Now, the podcast where we cover the entrepreneurs shaping the future of health and the health moonshots they're working to achieve. I'm Logan Plaster, Editor-in-Chief at Startup Health. They say that necessity is the mother of invention. Never has this been more true than it was for Richard Hanbury, CEO and founder of Sauna Health. 23 years ago, a car accident left Richard with debilitating nerve pain, pain so bad he was given just five years to live. One night, while watching a film, he realized that the movie was doing something to his brain that was providing pain relief greater than what he was getting from morphine. This accidental discovery set him on a decades-long journey to learn how he could use external neuromodulation, applying light and sound, to hack his own brain and cure his chronic pain. Richard succeeded in interrupting those pain signals and has been pain-free for more than a decade. Now with his company Sauna Health, he's created a consumer wearable that reproduces that same neuromodulation. It's currently registered as a wellness device, but Hanbury is working on multiple clinical trials to officially prove out the technology's pain care potential. This episode of the podcast starts with Richard's harrowing car crash in Yemen and ends with his health moonshot to end all chronic pain in the next decade. It's an incredible and inspiring story. Hope you enjoy. My understanding is you were in a car accident in Yemen. Uh, that's correct. You went off a bridge uh, instead of uh, go head-on collision with another car. You went off a 60-foot bridge, right, into a riverbed, crumpled your car, should have died probably, but miracle, you, you, you survived, and here you are talking to me today. What, we'll get into the whole kind of what that led to, but what do you remember from that, from the, the hours and days after that happened? Well, I... To start off with, I did actually, I, I was actually clinically dead for eight minutes. You were? Um, yeah, with, with no EEG activity either, um, and conscious thoughts of the entire eight minutes. So that's a, that's a whole other area of research that eventually we'll, we'll get in, I'll get into. Um, but uh, I, luckily, I didn't remember a lot of being in the Yemen because I was left uh, next to someone else um, who was dead and left in a pool of their own blood on the floor for two of the days. Um, and there was no food and there was no water in the hospital. And my, um, my, my car passenger with uh, a total of five different broken bones uh, was still hobbling from the, the village to the so-called hospital um, with, with, with water and biscuits to force feed me uh, to keep me alive until the plane medevaced me out. So luckily, I don't remember much of that time. Wow. Wow. Uh, you, you went through, you know, life-saving surgeries and treatment, and yet at the end of it, I understand you were still dealing with such debilitating nerve pain that you were given five years to live. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah. 
yeah. five, five years. What is it like? I mean, how can you describe to somebody this idea of a chronic pain that's so bad that it is, um, it, it can end your life? I think it's, I mean, it just, if you, I mean, the, the normal way I try and persuade it to, to, to explain to people is basically take the worst experience of pain you've ever had, um, which for almost half the human population is, is, is childbirth. Um, and imagine that pain there the whole time. So even when I was dreaming 50%, even when I was asleep, 50% of the time I was asleep, I was lucidly aware while I was dreaming that I was in pain. Mm. Um, so for me, there is, I, there's no way I would have survived five years. So if I had, if I didn't believe, if I hadn't believed there was a way out, um, I would have, I would have checked out of the equation myself. Um, it's, it's just, uh, I mean, now I forget how bad it was, but mm. every couple of weeks I get about five seconds of no pain and it's nearly always from lying, waking up in an odd, um, posture. Mm. Um, and that five seconds is enough just to remind you, oh yeah, that was what it was like 24 seven. And we, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. It really was that bad because, mm. you know, cognitively my brain doesn't want to acknowledge that it was that bad. Uh, but it really, it, it really was. It's, um, your, your whole body's in fight flight the whole time. So that's why you have a lower life expectancy because everything's broken. Anything that breaks, your body can't fix it because you, you, you always are in fight flight or rest recovery or somewhere between those two extremes. Um, and your, your, your body can't, uh, your body can't do both and severe pain pushes you into, to fight flight. Hmm. You said that if, if you hadn't believed that you could do something, that you could get better, that you would have seen no reason to, to go on. What gave you the, the hope and optimism that something could change? Uh, it, it was a particularly, um, uh, uh, important, uh, for me, Bruce Willis film that saved my life. It was Hudson Hawk. I was going to ask you about Hudson Hawk yeah, later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was it. That was it. That was, it was, it was the end of that. It was the end of that movie. Um, and realizing that the good bits of the movie has lowered my pain more than morphine. But I was like, holy shit, there is, a, there's. That changed my pain levels more than morphine, huh? What year were you in your five years when you were given five years to live? Uh, that was with your the first year. I was, that was, I was still year in, one. I was still, yeah, I was still in hospital at the time. Okay, you're in the hospital. Pain is absolutely excruciating. You're dreaming in pain, uh, and you see you see Hudson Hawk in the hospital. You just see it on like a hospital screen. Yeah, it was it was one of the first times I was out of bed and able to actually uh, move around at all. Um, and it was, it was in the, it was in the TV video room. Okay. Um, and it, it, it lowered my pain enough for me to be out of pain. Uh, sorry, not out of pain. I was still in a lot of pain, but be out of bed for 90 minutes while I was watching, while I was watching the movie. Okay. So what was it about the, the film itself? And I guess now would be a good time to explain kind of what your professional background is. The fact that you saw that notice what was happening and then connected the dots to something deeper versus just having a chuckle and uh, going on, <laughs> going on with your day. Well, I mean, when you're, when you're in that level of pain, you, you can't not notice the differences. Yeah. Um, you know, tiny changes you're, you're super aware of when it, when, when pain is that bad. And 
Um, it basically that film has really funny, fast-paced set pieces where they're burglarizing museums to music and and singing show tunes like singing "Swinging on a Star" is the one that most people remember from that film. And in the between times, some really bizarre dialogue and script. And and for me, that was a bit like watching your favorite show and the adverts come on. Mm. You know, the, 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 it has your attention. It has you in what we would now call a flow state. And then when it when it gets less um, uh, less engaging, your brain goes into the higher beta frequencies, and then you feel more pain. Okay. Um, and then, and then the other the, the second thought after holy crap that changed my pain was was um, wow. And the bits of the film that made me feel better uh, made me feel like I used to when I was skiing because hmm. um, skiing was my and horseback and what Americans call horseback riding still find that expression really weird it's like what other part of a horse are you going to ride um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah it was those two things that were my experience of flow state um, prior to going into hospital and so I was like okay I need to find a way to reproduce that state reliably um, in hospital they did try and give us meditation as a as a um, essentially suicide prevention measure it was okay well nothing else has worked so maybe this can take the edge off mm. but have you have you tried meditation yourself um very hit or miss not 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 really so so the core of meditation is getting you into greater present moment awakening awareness and that's a really stupid thing to do if you're in just mind-blowing levels of pain Mm. So the last thing in the world you should be doing. Mm. So opioids, for example, um, opioids are called painkillers, but it's a lie. It's it's a really really bad name because they don't kill pain at all. All they do is mask it. Mm. They they make you cognitively unaware of the pain that your body is in. Mm. So every other biomarker for pain is still there when you're in when when you're taking opioids. You're just cognitively not there. You you checked out either to a small degree if it's a small level of opioids or unconscious if you're on um, enough morphine to make you pass out and um, and, and so, so it's really sort of um, it, it was understanding okay hang on a minute so that actually changed my pain levels and I was conscious um, so that made me think okay well if I could if I'd already learned how to meditate really well if I'd been a meditator for 20 years then that would be useful right now mm. um, and I was like, okay, well, I can't learn because that's like holding a candle flame to a hurricane. It's just stupid. And I was like, okay, well, what does a long-term meditator's brain look like? How does how does it how does long-term meditation change your brain? Not just while you're meditating, but what happens afterwards. And luckily for me, you know, it's it's um, not just the shoulders of a giant. It was um, just some. Um, extraordinary talented effort has has gone in from lots of areas of, of research into how meditation changes the brain mm. and by 92 there was already 50 years of it um, and there was a particular guy called Maxwell Cave who wrote a book called The Awakened Mind and he did very large numbers of EEGs of long-term meditators and I bought the same equipment that he had used um, I measured my own brain. I compared it to the scans that he had of long-term meditators, and that's what that's what gave me the roadmap from A to B to from um, where I was to where long-term meditators were, okay. um, and that was the key breakthrough. 
how did you uh, how did you draw the line between Hudson Hawk and this idea of, of long term meditation, tricking your brain into looking like or acting like a brain that had been meditating its whole life? Well, it was really because being and, I, and, and again, I didn't. So Chick Melnihai had written his seminal work um, on flow um, by that stage, but I hadn't I hadn't ever read it. So to me, it was just okay. This feels like I used to when I was skiing. Got it. Got it. Um, flow state. And I was like, okay, well, that's a different state of consciousness. So a meditation is designed to help you learn how to change states of consciousness. Got it. Okay. So that was like, okay, well, I can't learn, but what does it look like once you've already learned? Once okay. you're already brilliant at it, what does that actually, what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, and had I been limited to um, sort of uh, academic journal um, research on that, um, I probably wouldn't have found it and I probably wouldn't have got there. Mm. But in, for me, luckily, in the, in the 70s and into the early 80s, um, there was this whole movement towards democratizing and making available the benefits of meditation, um, mostly in the US at the time. Um, and then Maxwell K did wrote this book that was designed for an average person to understand the basics of how things change. Um, and that's what gave me my window into the whole area. Um, gotcha. and yeah, without, without his work, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have figured it out. And, and what was your professional background that kind of gave you the foundation for that? Uh, none. So I, my, my high school, my high school biology teacher was actually one of the world's top experts on the neurobiology of memory. And okay. at high school, he was like, well, plants are boring. Uh, so I'm not gonna teach you about that. I'm going to teach you all about nerves in the brain. Okay. So I did, I, I got lucky in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then my undergraduate degree was actually Arabic. Okay. Um, and I was in the Middle East because I was learning Arabic. So I had, to, I had to learn everything from scratch. So it was so, just the biology teacher who, who gave me some foundation to understand how, to, how the whole thing fit together. So, so this really was necessity uh, the, as the mother of invention. So um, this is when we enter into sort of the um, multi-decade montage of building up this company. You go from someone with an idea to then how many years later, 25 years later, uh, where we are today, where you, you've gone from ideas to prototypes, you built a company, um, sort, of, sort of give me that high level montage of kind of like how that process worked and sort of bring me up to where you're at with your, with your company today. Yeah, for sure. So it was, it was six years of um, uh, lots of mini tests um, with me running around with laptops, wires, boxes, um, nothing that was scalable that all required me to sit with someone while I'm up to an EEG, use the audio visual stimulation, change how the brain was working, um, and then go away again. Uh, and that covered, um, everything I could think of. So a lot of sports work, um, a lot of military work, the special forces on everything from PTSD to marksmanship to speed driving. Cause essentially if you can produce a flow state, there is no area of mental wellness or mental health that you can't affect. Yeah. So we did mini trials on stroke, TBI, PTSD, uh, and performance. And um, another current product is uh, a headpiece that uses light and sound to kind of hack the brain. Was that always the, the methodology or was there an evolution? Yes. 
Yeah, no, so, so I mean, I, I did look through all the other ways of doing neuromodulation, um, but essentially, if you're applying electricity to the brain, you've got to go through the skull. Um, so you've either got an implant a device like Medtronic's Deep Brain Stimulation for Parkinson's, which is, you know, obviously not that scalable because um, opening someone's skull is not ideal. Uh, and the other small caveat that that takes, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to, to get through, uh, to develop and get through regulatory approval. So that's that's one avenue that wasn't open. Um, or you could do electricity from outside, but then you've got to get through the skull. And the skull is literally not conducive to doing that. So all of the ways in which neuromodulation is done with TDCS and, and other technologies, it's got to get through bone to get to the skull. So it's a blunt weapon. Um, and then you've got magnetic stuff, um, things like transcranial magnetic stimulation. But again, you've got to get through the skull. So your, your options are you make your magnet powerful enough so you're stuck in a clinic because you can't send someone at home with a massively powerful magnet because they can, you know, their kids can mess themselves up or they can mess themselves up. You, you, you can't administer magnetic therapy without a doctor being the one doing it, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and that leaves sort of audiovisual. And audiovisual, you're essentially using the visual cortex and the auditory cortex as your electronic touchpad into the brain. So you're sending a signal into the brain that the brain is then converting into the electrical signal that you want. Um, so that's the, that's, the, that's the hack. That's the shortcut of the way to do it. Um, and so it was always, so, so other than those early attempts to try different ways, it was always audiovisual. The big difference was EEG. So all of the original work I did on EEG, um, so measuring electroactivity, but you can't automate EEG. Because there are two problems with it, um, or two main problems. One is that um, is the sort of electrode system. You've either got wet electrodes, so you've got to get someone to clean their skin and stick a wet electrode on, and there has never been an at-home use device that has succeeded with wet electrodes on the head. People just don't want to do it. Mm. Um, and the other potential solution is you've got dry electrodes. Well, for dry electrodes, the best I've ever tested are come from a company called Muse. Have you come across them? The brain sensing headband. Mm -hmm. yep. So they are, they are awesome. They've got over a million EEG traces from people doing meditation. And that's fine for meditation where you've got people keeping still. Um, that it doesn't tolerate movement. And with sleep and with pain issues, you've always got movement. Mm. So for me, I had to wait until I had a heart rate variability sensor um, and heart rate variability measures small differences between each heartbeat, which then gives you a measure of systemic relaxation. Okay. So you can really see on a very uh, deep and visceral level exactly how where someone is on the on the balance between fight, flight, and rest recovery. Um, which, because that's what we're trying to get to with the device, means it's actually a better way of measuring it than EEG was in the first place. Okay, so just so I understand, so there's there's a, a a wearable device on your it goes over your eyes. It's soft, yeah. so you can wear it while you sleep, and it delivers this sound and light stimulation to kind of uh, give you a neural stimulation. It kind of hacks your brain, and at the same time, it's it's reading your um, wait. You said the heart rate variability. Heart rate variability, right? HRV. Um, 
So it knows how relaxed you are. It knows what's working. And I'm guessing it then feeds data back to the system. Is there an AI component? Yes. So, so this, is, this is the current version of the device. Nice. So you're okay. getting pulses of light through closed eyes and sound through um, headphones. And then that little sensor on the forehead mm -hmm. is, the, is the heart rate variability sensor. Hmm. Um, this version, um, which is the current version, is designed um, to, to, to wear um, either during the day or as you're going to sleep, um, 16 minutes each time, although you can use it for shorter and it's still going to deliver a result. And so you put it on, you press play, you're getting pulses of light through closed eyes and sound into your ears. It's, it's really very gentle. Um, and, and then that is getting you into a, a very deeply relaxed state. Hmm. Uh, we, are met, we, are, we are collecting that HIV measurement at the moment uh, via an app. Um, in the next version of the device, it will then be integrated into a closed loop feedback system. So the device will adapt to an individual in real time. Gotcha. Um, AI is a, we will then be doing machine learning in the cloud to work out new potential ways of improving the algorithm for um, whether there are differences by gender, by age, by disease indication, all of that stuff will work out to create new algorithms. And then each algorithm has to be then put through an FDA um, indication. Um, so to go back to sort of your multi-decade montage, it was six years of trial and error. Um, every, basically every small study worked in every area. Um, and, but I, couldn't have a I didn't have a business model around it that was going to work. So I went to business school to try and figure that out. And I went to McKinsey in London to try and figure that out. And then by the end of that, I was like, okay, there is no business model that ever was going to work around the one-on-one -on -one, um, treatment because neuroplasticity is a function of frequency and intensity. Okay. So if you're trying to solve pain or sleep problems, then you, it's, 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 it's a little bit every day is what actually works. Okay. And in that circumstance, you can't have someone go to a clinic. Yeah, it just doesn't. There's no way to make it work. So eventually, I I I I stopped looking for a business model that was going to work in a way that wasn't going to work, and I was then on the hunt for tech. Um, and eventually, the tech showed up, um, or the first version of it turned up from an Air Force medic that I'd done uh, one of these small studies with, that was actually on U.S. Air Force pilots on prevention of uh, G-lock which is gravity loss of consciousness. So yeah. go around a corner too fast, blood drains from your brain, you pass out, you die. Um, so how to stop that? So we did a mini test. Uh, it worked on improving it. And that was one of the many studies where at the end of it, the person was like, okay, great. Now what? Where, where is the device we can use on our own? And I explained the problems to him at the time. And then he sent me this device and I was like, okay, this is going to be useful. This is going to enable me to make this um, standalone device. And so that was when I restarted the company in 2015. Uh, we were focused on consumer sleep because I was like, okay, sleep underlies every area that we have anecdotal data on and, and small pilot data on from stroke, TBI, PTSD, pain, all of it. Um, and turns out that investors really do not like consumer health. Um, and specifically when the consumer health, they really, really, really just like consumer sleep. Um, and the reason is because there's so much junk in the space. Yeah. Um, and so if you're an investor, you're, 
basically saying, okay, do I trust these guys to make a piece of hardware in an area that it doesn't really matter whether it works or not? Um, you know, AKA the my pillow guy with his mm. pillow. Um, 25% of people like it, the rest don't. Um, and yet he is a marketing genius. Um, and, and, and basically if a VC is looking at a startup with a technical background without the marketing genius, mm. you can't get the marketing genius until you've got enough money to pay them. Yeah. Um, or you've got enough traction to prove that it's worth their skills to do it. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and there are plenty of times where had we had that marketing genius on board already, we probably would have got funding to go down that route. But that's why we then switched towards being a medical device. Um, we uh, did our first three pilot studies, um, opioid use disorder, um, where we got a 45% re reduction in anxiety at the worst point of a methadone addict going through withdrawal. Mm. Um, fibromyalgia, which is the big one. Um, and then we applied for our 513G um, approval from the FDA, which basically means we are now on market as a wellness device. So the only claims that we can make currently um, in any sales kind of venue is um, on improving mental, uh, sorry, improving physical wellness and um, optimizing mental health. Um, so everything else I've said in this, this, this interview, anything I will say about pain, et cetera, is they're all uh, forward-looking statements that we are going through clinical trials in order to prove out what works. Okay. And one of the challenges I've had is that um, people look at my video, my story, and then they expect um, sort of a silver bullet that's going to yeah, fix miracle. their pain. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and we will we will find. Um, I'm completely convinced that we will find subpopulations within at least spinal cord injury and phantom limb where that is the case like me now because pain really what pain is is it is a combination of central mediation and peripheral pain so an actual as a signal coming up from your body and how your brain sure. interprets that with spinal with my type of spinal cord injury pain that was very specifically not a pain signal coming up from my body it was a corrupted data stream hmm which the brain goes, ow, I don't know what that is, that looks painful, so I'm gonna call it pain. So when you trigger enough neuroplasticity, in my case, it totally removed all the pain. Now there will be, I hope, other subpopulations that we are that fixed for. Um, in, in the other end of the equation is something like chronic regional pain syndrome, where you have a really nasty pain signal coming up from the body, and your brain amplifies it a bit, because of uh, anxiety issues, sleep issues, all those kind of things. So those we, we, we look like we're showing somewhere between a 10 and 30% reduction in pain. Mm. Everyone else is somewhere between those two extremes. Okay. So fibromyalgia is a really good example. Everyone with fibromyalgia has actual physical pain that is amplified in the brain. Got it. Um, so fibromyalgia itself is a pain amplification disorder. So we are helping with the application bit, leaving the actual pain bit, Got it. Um, which means that we, so far, we're getting around about um, a 45% reduction, sorry, a 45% improvement in quality of life, um, which is a massive deal if you're not expecting anything. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, so we, are, we are on market as a wellness device. 
Um, what's your next? What, what's your next big um, study? I, I think I heard something about Mount Sinai. Yeah, we've got we've got two large studies underway at the moment. Um, Mount Sinai is neuropathic pain, um, and Duke is is fibromyalgia. Uh, we're expecting the Duke study to finish first, okay. and that will then be the subject of a de novo application to the FDA, um, which hopefully then we will have um, sometime in, in late Q1 or into Q2 next year. Uh, the Mount Sinai study will then be a self-predicated 510K. Um, we also, the next big study to start is a treatment-resistant depression study, which is starting at... Um, in Aurora Mental Health in the next few weeks. Gotcha. So those, those are the big ones. And we, we've, got, we've got some other great small stuff going on, uh, or small at the moment, which will expand. Yeah. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of stuff happening with NATO on fatigue mitigation with special forces, uh, people in different countries. What I hear you saying is there are so many applications for this. Once you get over the hump of understanding the science and that it's not just um, a bunk offer uh you know for for somebody's idea for how to help sleep that there are just a lot of um applications it, you, you said that five years ago you really ran into trouble with investors they weren't interested in consumer sleep uh, because of that but i understand that, that you've had a, a fundraise recently yeah so we we, we we've just closed on um uh total is it, we we had it we had We've raised 5.8 million uh, over the last sort of six months. Uh, Four million of that was in a rolling close on safe notes, which have now just converted because we've closed um, the first 1.8 of an equity round. Okay. Um, that was the first bit was led by Founders Fund. Uh, the second bit has been led by Grey House Partners, who are a Canadian VC that specialises in psychedelic pharma. Um, and then now we have uh, 3 million remaining left open in this round. Uh, we are trying to COVID protect ourselves by having enough money to, to get through into Q3 next year. I mean, you have really stuck this out. I mean, 25, 27 years at this process. Is that right? And, and here you just raised 5.8 million. You got these studies going on at Duke, Mount, I mean, Mount Sinai. Do you feel like the tide is turning? Do you, I mean, it really feels like uh, people are finally understanding what it is you're working on and, and it's making a lot of sense to people. Yeah, we're, we are very, we're very nearly, we're, we're very nearly there. I had a, I had a thing that happened. Um, it was uh, Thanksgiving last year. I was, I was lying in a hotel bed um, in San Francisco. Uh, my car was under two feet of snow in Denver airport. So I couldn't even have gone home if I wanted, if, if my, if my wife could have been at home, I still couldn't have gone home. And it was 8 a.m. in the morning. This woman rang me and she said, you don't know who I am, but your device saved my life and it's Thanksgiving. So I wanted to ring you to say, thank you. Mm. And I'm like, I'm like, Oh my God, like, who are you? What's this about? Um, and it was traumatic brain injury related headaches mm. that had been so bad. It made her suicidal. Um, and it was after that call that I was like, okay, the only thing we need to do now to make sure that this succeeds in one form or another, is to get a thousand devices out in the real world. Yes. Um, and, and now, I mean, the clinical trials were great. And when the results come through, um, that also will be a turning point where we, we, we are no longer at risk of survival. It's just a question of how long does it take us to, to then scale up and how do we scale up and what's that look like? 
Yeah. But uh, the next step is we are going out to do a thousand person user test okay. um, on fibromyalgia. So that's that's now the big push, which is now we are looking for every person who who, who suffers from fibromyalgia um, because there are no there are no there are no good solutions. The very best performing drug is Lyrica, which um, has so many side effects that 80% of the people who start using it stop. And even those that maintain use, the average improvement is 15% in the quality of their life. And we're at three times that with no side effects. Mm. So the aim is get a thousand people with fibromyalgia using, and then, uh, then at that point, the company is not has has zero chance of failure because those people won't let it. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. the aim. That's just the like end. just like next, that woman who called you. That's awesome, Richard. Um, I think that's the time that we have. If people want to partner with you, they want to be a part of that trial, and they watch this video. What's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Uh, the best way is actually through the website, um, oh. and um, it, and either um, for uh, any 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 uh, anything for the trial specifically should go to info at sana.io. Okay. Um, and anything on the related to sort of um, investor side should go to me at richard at sana.io. And the main site is sana.io. That's right. Awesome. Richard, thank you so much time for taking the time. Uh, I, we could go much deeper. It's a fascinating story. And um, I'm just proud of you for sticking through it for so long and, and excited that it feels like uh, things are clicking, people are understanding what you're working on. It's such a, an area where we need good science, good devices, cut through the noise, and there's a lot of people who you're really going to help. So Richard, thank you so much. Startup Health invests in health transformers from around the world who are committed to achieving audacious health moonshots. If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 330 companies, go to startuphealth.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back next week.